in my training, like what they always enforce is that there is an and, you know, we always say it's this or that, that's black and white thinking. We're like, what if it's and? Welcome to the Babble Podcast. I'm your host, Paige Brees, and I am so happy to have you here for some raw and real conversation. People say you should never discuss politics, money, or religion. Well, not here. This is a safe space to dive deep into how religion as a whole has affected our hearts, our minds, and our world. (laughs) The good, the bad, and the ugly. We all have a seat at the table, and I invite you to sit with me as I talk with religious leaders, experts, and friends alike. So, without further ado, let's babble. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Babel Podcast. Uh, Today, I'm super excited for this conversation because I have just an an incredible all-around human. I'm convinced there is nothing that this woman cannot do. I have with me Kelly Ryan. Uh, She is a creative uh, as well as a sex-positive clinician and theologian. So like, I don't think I've ever heard a title like that before. Sex positive clinician and theologian. Uh, She holds a master of divinity from Emory University and is currently completing her master's in social work at Smith College. And when she graduates next summer, she plans to become a therapist and researcher specializing in trauma caused by harmful religious beliefs, people, and institutions. So like Literally, who better to have on the Babel podcast than this woman? Kelly, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, I'm so excited. <laughs> this is so obviously, this is my jam. This is my jam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These kind of conversations are are what you live for. Literally, it is your life's work. Yeah. Um, so, so tell the people how how you kind of came to become this sex positive clinician theologian combination that you are today. Yeah. What is, what does that mean? Yeah. So, um, let me see if I can like give like a snippet of my story, but in a shorter version, because I could literally have a whole podcast episode probably just on my story. But, um, I, I grew up in uh, a religious household. Um, my mom was called into ministry when I was in about third or fourth grade. And so I always tell people I'm, I'm not as much a PK as much as I'm an SK. I'm a seminary kid. So I spent like a good chunk of my childhood, like on the seminary campus and um, hearing about how amazing my mom is to leave corporate America to become a minister like that. Like that was like the surrounding influence in my life in my childhood. Um, however, the, the great thing about my mom is that she is very much uh, liberal, inclusive. So like I didn't I'm very thankful I did not grow up in what I would consider like an oppressive religious system. Like I was in a very rainbowy, welcoming space when it came to the churches that I was in. I didn't necessarily feel like um, I wasn't welcome um, in those spaces. My I have an uncle who's gay and like, you know, I just, I was very lucky. I grew up in the theater. I was always around queer people. Um, and so like in my view, I was like, I like, I didn't even know that like this was a thing that like queer people were not welcome in a church and like it was not okay. 
However, I will say this, I did know sex was not okay. Mm. Um, right. Um, and so, um, that's kind of where like the narrative started for me of having difficulty with religion was around sex. Mm. Um, and what was and was not allowed in relationship. And a lot of my friends in high school were super conservative Christians. And um, they, not that I necessarily fell in their camp, but I hung out with them. And so we had a lot of conversations. And like, I had a friend who was determined to not kiss their spouse until the day of their wedding. Like that is like the severity of like commitment that was in my Christian friend group. Um, and that was a really powerful influence on me. And like, I had this peer pressure in my brain of like, oh, wow, like this is, this is really important to faith, like to, to maintain this abstinence, even to the extreme of not kissing someone. Like that was a really significant influence for me, despite what was necessarily being taught in my own house from my mom, who was a minister. Right. And so I have like these competing narratives that really like were surfacing in my stomach, in my heart. And I didn't know what to do with them. Um, I went to Interlochen Arts Academy, my senior year of high school, and I left Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is where I grew up. And I, um, I met this amazing group of Christians there. And that was when I received my call into ministry. I was in a small group. Um, and we were listening to, um, the casting crown song, the voice of truth. And it was, and I'm a musician. Mm -hmm. I'm a musician. So like I hear, feel, experience God through music. I can't tell you how many times I've turned on my car radio and God is yelling at me (laughs) because I asked a question and I literally turn on my car and it's like, here's your answer, Kelly. Now deal with it. (laughs) Mm. And so, um, this was one of those moments for me and like something about those words just really rung for me. Like the voice of truth tells me a different story. The voice of truth says, do not be afraid. And like that, I don't like, I even will get emotional. Just anytime I hear that song, it just brings something about in me. And I didn't necessarily know what the call was yet. I just knew I had one and that I wanted to be a minister. There was something happening I ran away from it for a long time. I was, I went to music theater. Well, I actually technically went to opera school and then I transferred and went to music theater school. Instead. <laughs> and, um, and I kind of like, I dabbled. Um, I was actually going to a mega church in Chicago. Um, and of course the name is escaping me right now, but it's Willow Creek. I was going to Willow Creek. Um, and I, uh, I would have these moments where God would like step and be like, just remember you're called to ministry. Okay, bye. Um, and it would like come in and out. And then I'd be like, no, no, Broadway. Um, and then um, <laughs> I followed my dream post-graduation and moved to Orlando to work at Disney and eventually also worked at SeaWorld, all the fun Orlando things that you do as a performer. And I came to a church there. It was um, St. Luke's United Methodist Church. I'd, nev- I'd been to a Methodist church because my mom's first job out of seminary was not a Methodist church, even though she is UCC, United Church of Christ. And so my exposure to Methodist church was through that. But this is a very different Methodist church. Um, this was like 
where all of the Disney creatives, performers, people went to church and they took their creative arts and being and put it into their faith. Holy shit, that church, y'all. Like you, if you ever go to Orlando, like, and you're not Methodist, just, just go dabble there for one second. Cause it's just amazing who is there. Like I can't, um, but what it was for me was like, oh my God, the church in my head can exist in real life. Like mm-hmm. before that, I hadn't really seen like what my vision of the church is, which is this beautiful rainbowy place where everyone is welcome. The arts are alive and doing all of these things. Like they're doing really, really intentional work in the community and not like, here's some food. Like they were working with, not, you know, assuming, right, what their community needed. And like, I just, I was so inspired. I'm like, all of a sudden, that voice was like, (laughs) it was loud. Um, it, and I don't know if anyone else experiences this, but like, if you ever like, like for me, like it was the, the voice started small, but when, when the call was like coming, I, I swear to you, like every other second, something would say something about it. Like it was just loud. like mm-hmm. everything would be about it. So I went to seminary <laughs> and um, that was when I started to meet my people. Like I started to really see, okay. Like, I'm not alone in my own little camp over here about what the church could be. Because in my opinion, the church is not what it could be. Um, And I know that's maybe a controversial opinion for some people, or maybe not. It depends on if you're prophetic, right? Um, But (laughs) (laughs) like, for me, like the church is dying. Mm -hmm. And there is a reason. It's, I mean, for me, the reason the church is dying is because it's disease. Um, It is, it is wrapped in sin and just all of like my, and just to be clear, I have a definition of sin. (laughs) My definition of sin is anything that removes you from God. And that can be interpreted in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Some people interpret that as here are the rules of what removes you from God. But for me, I'm like, no, go to the simple definition. What is removing you from God? And for me, people not acting in true love, unconditional love, in every shape and form of what that means is a removal from God. And that is what I saw the church doing. Hmm. And so I started to have these conversations with, you know, really liberal, um, uh, radical voices at my seminary, which was Hamler School of Theology at Emory. And um I started to learn some things, a lot of things. Um, I started to realize that I was, I mean, that I was bisexual, first of all. Yes, I found out I was bisexual by going to seminary. Thank you. Have a nice day. (laughs) Because like, for me, I didn't see these voices before. Like I hadn't, you know, a big conversation that happens a lot is like, oh, I want to see my role model, you know, to know that it's safe to go into society in the way that I think that I am. And for me, I met those role models, those people that I didn't know existed at seminary. And I was like, oh, wait, this is a thing. Like I can be who I am and be a Christian. And like, wait, I, you can like two camps or all the camps or whatever that means. Like I just, I, I had all these really great conversations. I realized that I was always hovering near the queer community because I was the queer community. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And um, I had these conversations about what does that mean as a Christian to read um, the Bible and interpret as a queer theologian? What does that look like? Um, and I, I really delved into the scripture and started to really understand, okay, this is what this looks like. This is why these things are happening. There's a lot of decontextualization for power. Hmm. So I'm going to say it again. There's a lot of decontextualization in order to gain power. And um, once I realized that, I was like, okay, so what can I do personally in order to try to mend the brokenness that has been created from this decontextualization of the faith that I love. And so I, um, the call started to form. I was like, okay, I think what I really am called to do is work on this thing, this injury, this harm that is being caused by theology or at least an interpretation of the scripture, you know, like there's, Mm -hmm. and so I followed that and then it started to turn into, you know what, as I I started to, I was working as a youth director and then I worked as a campus minister and I was like, I really, I hate working in the church. I can't do it. Mm. Like I can't do it. (laughs) Um, I don't want to, I don't want to preach weekly. Um, where, where I really felt called is I want the relationship. Mm. I felt really called to the relationship. I wanted to have those intentional conversations with people. I love being an educator. Like I love leading small groups and like really pushing, you know, the hard questions and really leaning into the mystery of what faith is. Um, and so I was like, you know what? I'm going to go get my chaplaincy training. And I'm going to really work on pastoral care. And so I worked at Brady and at Chella in Atlanta, Georgia, as doing my chaplaincy training, which is through, for those that don't know any of these things, let me explain. Um, <laughs> there's a thing called the ACPE, which is the Association for Clinical Pastoral Education. And the way a chaplain is trained is you get trained usually in a hospital and you have to do four units of CPE training, which include um, having clinical um, education through um, meeting with a group and learning some things and discussing cases and then working actively as a chaplain in the hospital and doing what's called action reflection action. So you go and you, you do your, your work and then you come back and you reflect and say, Oh, this is what happened. Oh, would I do this again? And and you reflect and then you go back into the world and you try again. (laughs) And so you, you do that for, about a year and a half. Um, and then theoretically you go and you find a chaplaincy position, you, um, and then you can get certified. Well, when I finished, I could not get a chaplaincy position because at this time I decided to leave, um, the Methodist church. I, I was following ordination process through Methodist church because that's where I was going. And I realized that I was not uh, a hierarchical system person and that I was not comfortable with a bishop saying, this is where I'm going. Mm. And, um, I also realized I was too congregationalist. Like I, <laughs> it wasn't even about like all of the drama that's happening in the Methodist church with queer politics. Like for me, it was really, it really came down to, am I 
someone who can live in an Episcopacy system that is hierarchical? Or am I really, truly a congregationalist because this is how I grew up and I can't let go of it? And so I went back to the UCC, which meant I had to start over my ordination process, Mm. which meant I was unhirable because they don't like to hire chaplains who are not ordained and commissioned by their denomination. Mm. So I couldn't find a job. I was working in nonprofit. And um, I realized during that time, I was like, you know what? This is happening for a reason. The reason this is happening is because I am not called to generic chaplaincy work as much as I love working in an ER or an ICU and being there in these moments with families and supporting them through that. I was called to do very specific work. And so that was when I decided to go back to get my clinical degree mm-hmm. in order to pursue this idea that religion and the beliefs of religions can cause trauma. And um, work directly with people who have this type of trauma and do some research and try to increase um, this knowledge of this field that is barely existing right now. Mm. And so that that kind of brings me to where I am today, um, where I am in the middle of my degree, uh, about to go into my second internship um, this coming year. And I've been blessed to work in institutions that are literally like accessible for my clientele. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, like my dream clientele of in regards to religious trauma and how that is affecting their ability to thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's basically where I'm today. That was Amazing. a lot. That was me telling my short version of the story. Wow. Okay. <laughs> no, it's perfect. It gave us everything we needed to know. Um, and, and I mean, what an incredible journey that you've had up to this point. And then it's obviously only going to continue with the work that you are about to jump into. And it's, it's very, very exciting because I I truly do believe that there is such a need for people who are called to the work that you do. Um, I mean, it's the (laughs) religious trauma is the whole reason I started this podcast. You know, there are people who need to get their shit out and talk about it. And and other people need to know that there are people in the world who experience similar things to them or, um, or need to be, you know, need to be told that they have like the other people have experienced trauma in their similar faiths or different faiths. Like it's, and I, in my own kind of healing, I'm still healing from my religious traumas. It's a daily practice. Um, but there are, um, yeah, in my own writings of, cause originally I was going to write a book, right. And it was going right. to be about my processing of growing up in the church as an adolescent for my own journey and how the, the church's doctrines, um, affected how I've thought about sex to your point about sexuality, um, and about purity culture, culture, girl, holy shit. Um, what a time, what a topic. Get you some Um, Nadia Boltz Weber. Go read Nadia Boltz Weber, please. God, if anyone has not come across Nadia Boltz Weber, let your mind be opened by her book. <laughs> Absolutely. Just, Absolutely. She has a lot of books, but there's one specifically on purity culture. You have to read it. She literally collected people. I'm sorry. I'm totally just the ADHD no. just gone. Um, she literally collected people's purity rings mm. and melted them down 
to create a vagina statue. And she is a ordained Lutheran minister. Go find her now. If you have never heard this name before, <laughs> do it. I'll link it in the show notes. So if you guys want to check her out, just scroll yes, down please. and click. Um, that's, yeah, that's a very, very good point. So, so tell us, I, I want to talk about religious trauma now, um, because it's what you are, it's, it's what your entire work is surrounding at this point in life. So you say that there are two camps of religious trauma. Can you, can you talk about that and what those two camps are from your understanding? Yes. So, um, as I started to get invested in this idea of getting into religious trauma research and um, pursuing this degree, um, I was, you know, <laughs> doing the good old Google searching. Um, <laughs> and in the process of the searching, I found this amazing place um, that um, some people had started called the Religious Trauma Institute. And um, they're, you know, one of the few people kind of that have started doing this groundwork of research education around this issue. Um, just to be clear, this is not a diagnosable thing in the DSM as of yet. People do not recognize this in the field whatsoever. This is like a complete sect of people that are trying to start this work and start the conversation. It is very new. It is very fresh. Um, there is like a, there's an argument that religion cannot cause trauma. And so these researchers are trying to challenge that argument. Um, and what they're starting to find is that people actually have PTSD symptoms mm -hmm. that can go back to religious causation. And so, um, again, it's fresh. It's new. And so what has happened in the process of these um, of people doing this research is um, two camps have been formed. So you have the camp, which I guess I kind of fall in this camp, but I honestly, I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle because I'm, even though I'm called to ordain ministry, I, I don't, I don't see myself as a traditional ordained minister mm -hmm. in the future. Like I, I've always said, and Paige, we've had this. So just, just for context, Paige and I met doing um, some theater together and we carpooled because we literally live next to each other. Like we could sit <laughs> at each other's places. And so we've, we've had a lot of conversations in the car about these things. Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 Um, but I, um, as I went to do this research, um, I found out that like there's two camps and I kind of fall in the middle because I, I feel that when we all die, we're all going to be wrong. We're all going to be right. And then there's going to be a whole lot more. And so who am I to say that this one faith structure is who God is? Like, why can't God be so complex that all of these religions are telling a little bit of God's story? Mm -hmm. And so, and even people with no religion at all, like, why can't, why can't that be? Why can't an atheist be part of God's story? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, so that's kind of where I sit. And thankfully in my tradition in the UCC, I can sit there and still be ordained and be honest <laughs> about who I am. That's, yeah, that's, great. that's why I love the UCC. Yeah. Um, but so I kind of feel like I sit in the middle and I'm kind of looking at both. Um, however, it's easier for me to fall into the religious trauma institute camp because that's where people who are kind of studying from the perspective of 
Christian religion, all of that, and are like, you can still be Christian and have and do this do this work kind of camp. Mm-hmm. So you have like the religious institute camp where people are like, okay, so just to give an example, like I'm queer and um I still go to church, but it's really difficult for me to go to church. Um, and I have PTSD symptoms sometimes when I go to church because of my upbringing, but I really still feel called to be a Christian. Hmm. And I feel, I do believe in, in this, in this Bible, in this Jesus, in this God that is unconditional and forgiving and love, right? Like I, I still believe that that is possible for me to be a queer person and be in this faith structure. Mm-hmm. So there is that camp. The other camp is you cannot recover from religious trauma unless you give up religion mm. and say fuck it all mm-hmm. religion is bullshit and it's a construct made by humans mm-hmm. to deal with mystery and you do you don't need it run away so you have these two camps right mm-hmm. so you have people doing work in the community saying yes you can still be in your faith and heal from religious trauma and it'll be okay then you have the other camp that's saying, no, you have to leave it all behind. You're never going to recover if you're in religion. And I have friends in both of these camps, just to be clear. Yeah. And so for me, I feel like, what's the in-between? Like, can't there be an in-between? Yeah. You know, and and that's, um, and that's the work I want to do. You know, I hate, I mean, I know I'm bisexual, but I hate the binary. I know people think bisexual <laughs> is a binary term, but that's not true. Incorrect. Um, yeah. Like I, I, I feel like there's this like binary thing happening where, you know, like it's one or the other. Mm-hmm. And in my training, like what they always enforce is that there is an and, you know, we always say it's this or that that's black and white thinking. I'm like, what if it's and right. Like, can you say, what the fuck is religion? It is a construct made by humans. This is stupid. And this idea of unconditional love is actually pretty great and really formative in my life in some ways. Mm -hmm. Can you hold both? I think you can. I think there is an and there. And that's essentially like the research I want to do. I want to find that middle ground. And I I think I'm a bit of a mystic in this way. Mm -hmm. Um, I really... Um, I think humans are just constantly searching for definitive answers. Yes. But I, I always wonder, I'm like, what, what if, what if we just leaned into mystery? Like what, what if we just said, we won't know and that's Mm -hmm. okay. Like kind of how people like say, like, um, it's okay not to be okay. Mm -hmm. Like it's okay to not know. Yeah. It's okay to not know. It's okay that you don't have the answers for everything. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where the core of what I want to research and find will be born from, so to speak. Yeah, Um, definitely. Yeah. I love that. I love that so much. And I, I think again, as I've said before, just like even just that core aspect of your work is so important because for a long time, I, I'm not a religious person at this 
point in my life. And there was a time where I was in the camp of, I can't stay in the church or I can't stay in this religion at all. If I want to heal, like I I have to just leave it behind. And, and that did like, it worked for me for a little bit, but now I'm, you know, I'm not saying that I am going to go back into Christianity and, and get back into that for myself. I don't know that yet. That's not where I'm at currently, but I do think I sit more in the in-between that you're saying that like, there's, there's no, there's, there's, I've always said there's no black or white on anything, including religion. There, there has to be a conversation of the flow and the in-between and the spectrum of it all. Um, because no, no person is a black and white person. Everyone has nuances. Everyone has bits of them that change and bits of them that leave and return. Like you, you can't, you can't tell a person this is right and this is wrong. And that's how it will always be. Um, so I, I love that you are one of those who are spearheading this conversation and spearheading this research. Cause I think it will be incredibly impactful. Um, so I would love to talk about, you, you say you're a sex positive clinician. Do you find that, um, do you find that a lot of the trauma that you research and the, the people that you speak to on this issue, is their trauma surrounded by the conversation about sex and sexuality? Is that a pretty common conversation? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and just to start from my own story um, and to get super raw. So just to make this like more tangible, Mm-hmm. Um, and get an example of what this looks like. So purity, purity culture um, and how it can cause rel- religious trauma is really well showcased in my story. Mm-hmm. So um, obviously I shared at the beginning that I was exposed to some really conservative friends um, and that was a very significant influence on me. Um, I will be really transparent in that, you know, part of my learning in my mental health was letting go of people pleasing. And Mm -hmm. so I, um, I was still a really very active people pleaser at this point. And so I say that to give you context for how this, you know, makes me more vulnerable Mm -hmm. to religious trauma because I, I feel really cold to do what everyone else is doing to assimilate, to seem accepted or acceptable. And so part of that is because my friend structure was really invested in the idea of purity culture and Mm -hmm. saving yourself for marriage. And that was the holiest thing to do. Um, I was very affected by that. I dated in high school, but um, transparency, all of them are gay. Um, And um, (laughs) so, yeah, like I, I kissed a lot of people. No, no sexual relations because I had, I had this thing in my head that was like, no sex, no sex, no sex. Um, and that if I had sex, I was officially done. I was officially impure. Um, it was impossible to recover from that religiously. Um, for forgiveness, like I just couldn't see the path to forgiveness if I had sex. Does that Mm -hmm. ring true? Maybe. So when I went to college, I had my first like real boyfriend, um, like committed relationship boyfriend. Um, And 
I was severely affected um, by the people pleasing and that relationship turned abusive. Mm. Um, And I ended up being kind of not necessarily manipulated, but um, I eventually gave in to having sex with my boyfriend because we were in a committed relationship in my head. I was like, well, we're, we're probably, you know, we're obviously going to get married. So maybe it is okay. And I was seeing like my other friends doing these things, like in having sex with their boyfriends. And so like, I was trying to like calm myself. It'll be okay. Like you can do this because you're going to marry him. It'll be okay. Um, and then it wasn't okay because the relationship was abusive and I really shouldn't have been in it. And I was trapped. I was trapped by the idea that I had sex with him and that I could not leave that relationship because I had to marry him mm-hmm. because I can only have sex with one person in my life. And so I got trapped in this abusive relationship for three years mm. because of this idea that I can only have sex with one person in the only way I could possibly find a way to forgiveness was marrying him. Hmm. And um, so finally, he actually broke off the relationship, thankfully. Um, but I, it took me forever, like years, to heal from this idea that I would now have sex with other people. Hmm. And when I started to have sex with other people, I just, I like, I, I went through like turmoil internally about it with my faith. Like, mm-hmm. even though like I had one narrative saying, no, Kelly, this is stupid. It's okay. Like, this is natural to want to have sex with people. Like, this is how God made you. I still had this other narrative from my high school friends saying, no, mm-hmm. no, you have, you are a sinful person. And you have got to stop doing these things and you're going to help, you know, like all of these two competing narratives of like, quote unquote, liberal Mm -hmm. theology and conservative theology were just like the two little angels and devils on my shoulder every time, every time, Mm -hmm. every single time. Um, I feel like I only ever healed from that in like, the past few years, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm still healing from it. Um, but that's what it looks like practically, right? It's not just that I'm dealing with this inner turmoil of purity culture and whether or not I should have sex or not. Therefore, I can't enjoy sex for what sex is, which is actually, in my opinion, kind of can be a spiritual experience if you're doing mm-hmm. it with the right person. I cannot, I cannot do that. And in addition, it trapped me in an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. Like it's not just dangerous for someone's mental health. It can turn into danger physically. Yes. Yes. Especially for women. I mean, it it can happen to men too, for for sure, especially in the queer community. But like, it's, it's a real danger like an extreme danger for women who have been in purity culture. Mm -hmm. Um, I've even, I don't know where I read this story. I read about a woman 
who, who did wait till marriage. And, um, she, I wish I could remember where this, what book this was in or where this was, but she, she had waited till marriage and she felt guilt around having sex, even though she was having it with her husband. Like that is how extreme this belief structure bleeds into your sexual life. And I am of the firm belief, and this is why I say I'm sex positive. I'm of the firm belief that God made us sexual beings. Mm-hmm. I mean, duh. Like, <laughs> the writing's on I, the wall. Like, it's pretty clear. Yeah, like, I, we, we are sexual beings, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. I'll say that again. We are sexual beings, and that is okay. <laughs> Like it is natural and anything that is natural, like go back to, is God made? Mm-hmm. And so I, here's my thing. Here, here's where I kind of come down to like the crux of it. Um, because sex is natural and God made, if you take it in the context of Christian religion, how can you be intentional about how you're having sex? How can you make sure your Christian beliefs are, sh- are being honored in your sexual relations? And for me, that is unconditional love, right? Everything for me, when it comes to the Christian faith, it comes to like unconditional love. Like why, why do we have a gospel? Unconditional love. That's why there is a Bible, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's the idea of, of, the fact that there was this uh, man who was also God come to earth to showcase what unconditional love looks like. So how can we in our sexual relationships showcase unconditional love? I think it is possible to be queer, to be straight, to be poly, to be whoever you are sexually asexual, which I now identify as, Mm -hmm. to be asexual and be an unconditional loving Christian in your sexual life. Here is how I believe that happens. You can come up with your own conclusions. I believe that happens through consent. So I believe unconditional Christian religious sex, however you want to look at it, unconditional love Sexual relation looks like consent. So when you enter a space with someone who you would like to have sexual relations with, whatever that looks like, and I'm including the BDSM community in there, I don't care what you do in your bedroom, right? <laughs> it all serves it all serves a purpose. It is a spiritual experience. Everyone's spiritual experience and connections are different from the person next to them. And there's reasons for that. I believe that that is found through consent. So when I meet you and we have decided that we are going to have sexual relations with each other, whether it is for tonight and tonight only, whether it is because we are maintaining a monogamous committed relationship, whether it is because you are my poly partner and then I'm going to go have sex tomorrow night with my other poly partner, whatever it is, whatever it looks like, it's the unconditional love is shown through, hi, this is who I am. This is what I am doing in my life. 
here are the lists of diseases that I have, you know, like whatever that conversation looks like, right? This is what unconditional love looks like. Hey, I just got diagnosed with herpes. I'm being forward with you about that. Here's how we can work around that and be honest with each other, showing unconditional love. Are you okay with that? How would you like to have sex tonight knowing this information, right? Mm -hmm. Like, hey, is it, how are you doing today? Are you okay with me touching you here today? Right? That's what unconditional love looks like. For me, like that, that is Christian sex. Not this idea of shaming the fact that we are sexual beings, but honoring the other person or persons that you are with and saying, I see you as another human being. How can I honor who you are? How can I honor your, what I always say, your Imago Dei, which is your image of God in you. How can I honor your Imago Dei in this sexual relationship today? So that's for me, that's, that's like my vision of what sex positive therapy and or religion looks like. Yeah. Um, and I've worked with clients who, you know, are in monogamous relationships. I've worked with clients who work in the sex industry. Like it is possible to be a Christian and have these conversations across the spectrum mm-hmm. of sexual relations. It's a matter of how you look at things. And um, for me, that is how I look at things. And I know that's difficult for a lot of people to hear because <laughs> yeah. of how they grew up. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was going to say, it's certainly a, it's certainly a perspective that is not at all cohesive with the the theology and the doctrine that uh, most of us who grew up in a Christian church come to understand. Um, but I think it's beautiful. And I think it's, it, it, it can be applied to if, if anyone's not Christian per se, but it, whatever religion they identify with, or if they're a non-religious at all, um, it's, I think that's how anybody can ensure they have a positive relationship with, with sex. Um, because I find that your, your perspective on, or your definition of what that looks like in terms of honesty, communication, honoring the other parties involved is, is beautiful. Um, and I think that's really, 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 really cool. It makes my heart smile to hear, um, to hear sex (laughs) talked about in that way, because, um, I, you know, like so many others, I struggled with purity culture as well. Uh, similar to you, I had an abusive, a mentally and emotionally abusive relationship at the beginning of college. And we were so, we were so attached to this idea of being pure and, you know, we, my boyfriend wrote out like a a little mini contract to my parents that was like, I will not kiss your daughter in the first year of our relationship. And obviously that was broken in the first like two weeks. Um, And then we felt shame and had to go repent and try again. And then we'd fail again. And it was this constant, um, but we, it was, it got to the point where we, we got as close to having sex as we possibly could without actually doing it. And, and then it was just a a constant emotional turmoil over and over and over again. Um, for the, for us both, it was not initiated by one party or the other, but it was not a very healthy relationship for either of us to be in. And after that, after we got out of that relationship, 
and I started my former, my, not my former, my current relationship. Um, <laughs> I, I struggled for a long time with sexual relations with him. And sometimes I still do, um, to your point, like there are, there are still times where I'm not sure if how I want to be intimate is okay or is acceptable. Like that, that's, yep. that's still something I'm working on. And, um, and I think it's, I think it's beautiful that you are putting out into the world that sex is cool. Like sex is okay. As long as it is within the parameters of love, of honesty, of communication, of love and of honoring the people that you're around and that you're with. I think it's a, a beautiful way to, to teach people to let go and to work through their traumas. Yeah. It's really, really cool. So thank you so much for sharing all that today. I think it's incredible work, incredible work. Yeah. And just like to um, expand, like when I say, when I say love, like you don't have to be in love with the right. person you're having sex with, right? Like you, you just have to love them as another human being mm-hmm. and the fact that they, they are another human being and how can you honor them? So like, even like, even though like I am in a committed relationship right now, like I have had sexual relations with people that I was not in committed relationships with, but I had really wonderful moments with them because we honored the other person in the room. Mm-hmm. Right. So I just want to make that clear because, um, you know, because we were having a conversation about purity culture. And what that can look like is, you know, the idea of I have to be in love and I have to be married and all of that. And so I just want to reiterate that love looks like a lot of different things Mm. and it's not always monogamy. Yeah, it's not right. It's not always monogamy and commitment. It it can look like a lot of different things. Like you can love a friend. You don't have to have sex with your friend. Some people do, but you like, you can love (laughs) a friend, right? (laughs) Absolutely. I love you, Kelly. <laughs> oh man. No, absolutely. And thank you for expanding on that because I think too many people have that trauma association with love as well. Um, that love is either reserved for your, your love with God and your love for your husband. Like it's, it's one of those two or your partner or whoever. Um, but yeah, I think there, that definition is starting to change though, where we are learning how to love our fellow person, like our fellow human. Um, and just acknowledging that I have a story, you have a story, I have trauma, you have trauma. Let's, let's be here together and figure out what that means for us in this moment, which I think is, is gorgeous. Kelly, where can the people find you to you learn more about your work or to just follow you on the daily because you're a cool human. Where, where can the people find you? I know I'm always so bad at this. I'm still like the process of trying to get my social set up, but, um, I do, I do have a TikTok where I do address this stuff sometimes. And that, um, if you want to find me on TikTok, it's XX smile and sing XX. Um, I also am on Instagram um, under, uh, the same thing at XX, smiling, XX. Um, but I, I am working on, um, creating, uh, some intentional media and things like that just for my work. But I 
you know, I'm in the middle of school, so I haven't seen <laughs> So I, I will let you know when that happens and Perfect. update the people. But for now, go find me there. Um, and uh, I hope to come back because I have so many directions and topics I could go with you on these things. Oh, girl, like, yeah. No, um, I, I have no doubt that we will have another <laughs> conversation. No doubt in, in my mind. Yes. Um, yeah. But the, it's so, so good. Thank you for, for sharing your story. It really, really is going to inspire a lot of people with your story alone and then just sharing your work like i've been saying throughout this entire conversation is is going to be pivotal i think for the people that you serve um and for the people who yeah. listen to this podcast who have been just pounded over the head with purity culture so thank you so much for for being you i appreciate yeah. you very much thank you Paige. same back copy paste <laughs> <laughs>